You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So beginning in John chapter 12, as John is introducing us to his very best friend, Jesus, a beloved disciple, things start to turn as we've been seeing the public ministry of Jesus played out John introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people who don't get Jesus and who have profound questions and doubts about Jesus. We come to chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served... And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold? For 300 denarii and given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money, he used, to, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me when the large crowd of the jews learned that jesus was there they came not only on account of him but also to see lazarus whom he raised who he had raised from the dead so the chief priests made plans to put lazarus to death as well because on account of him many of the jews were going away and believing in jesus the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, 
Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Here ends the reading of God's word. My prayer for us is that we would see in this text a lens through which I believe you can understand the whole of the Bible. That is, the glory of God. This word glory or glorification showed up eight different times in this chapter alone. And so we're introduced to this picture of what glory is. And I would encourage you to think in these categories, God is glorified in salvation through judgment. That isn't just the theme of this text. It's the story of the entirety of the Bible. That people deserve judgment. That their, their actions actually deserve punishment. Now we love justice, or at least we like to claim that we love justice, but everyone knows in the depths of their own heart that if they were begin to be measured by the same justice they demand in the world, they would be crushed by it. We all want to see justice out there. We all want to see someone stop hurting us. We always want to see justice out there remedied, but we never really want to admit the fact that the real justice that will come and crush is the justice that will ultimately be applied to our own hearts. The evil we see out there, unfortunately, we have to admit exists even in us. And the Bible is the story of how people deserve punishment. They deserve what's coming to them. They deserve the awful things that happen to them. Even, even though they may be innocent victims of someone else's harm, they're still guilty in their own sin before a good and just and perfect God. That isn't to say that they deserve all the things that have happened to them, but that is to say that before God they deserve punishment and wrath. But what's the story of the Bible? I share this on a regular basis. You read the first few chapters of Genesis, everything's perfect, right? And that's, that's often our cry, like, I, I would be better, I would be more obedient, I would live a more moral and upright life if everything was perfect. If my situation was perfect, I would do better at doing right things. And what's the first story of the Bible? A debunking of that myth. Even in perfection, even when everything's perfect, what's the first drive and inclination of a human? To think they're God. Now that's where I think the Bible should end. If I was writing it, if I were God, that'd be the end of the story. I made a perfect world. I made these people, gave them everything they want. We just hung out together and they messed it up. Well, there's the end of that story. Uh, let's wipe that one off and start another one, right? Shake the Etch-A-Sketch etch and let's go do something else, right? Like this is, forget that. But what's the story of the rest of the Bible? That's just the beginning. What happens then? Instead of casting them completely out of his presence, what happens? He continues over and over and over again to draw them to himself. And they go like, fine, I'll be God anyway. And he draws them to himself and they rebel against him. They harm one another and he draws them to himself. And the story of the Bible over and over and over again is even though they deserve judgment, God is pleased. He deserves and receives glory by saving people who deserve judgment. And we see that picture come into very stark relief in this chapter. More specifically, we see that God receives the glory, not just through salvation, through judgment. We'll see that next week as well as we finish up the rest of this chapter. But specifically in this first 36 verses, God receives glory through honor amidst opposition. Did you catch what we just read? Several different instances right after 
one after the other, where someone honors Jesus, and then right after someone honors Jesus in some profound and radical way, what happens? Someone complains about it. So Mary, in this radical act of submission and worship to Jesus, is met with what? Judas going like, is this really the best use of our resources? Is this really the best thing we should be doing? Is glorifying God through the Son, Jesus, what we really should be doing? Should we be doing something else? And then we see the, one, of the, one of the things that we see in the Gospel of John that is actually in every single one of the Gospels, that's triumphal entry. We celebrate this on Palm Sunday. That people yell, God is going to save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And what happens immediately after that? People are like, everyone's going to follow Jesus. We've got to find a way to stop him. So don't miss this. In this particular chapter, God receives the glory and salvation through judgment through Jesus Christ. But here we see he receives glory through like radical acts of honor, worship, and submission amidst very strong opposition. One of the things I want you to pay attention to for the rest of this book, and this is really pretty powerful for us, the glory of God receives in worship in the midst of op- opposition and especially in light of his own death and resurrection comes into relief in chapter 12 in a way that is actually common in all of the Gospels. You see, up to this point, in the first 11 chapters, we've covered about three years of Jesus' public ministry. But for the next large period of time, in fact, chapter 12, starting now, all the way to chapter 20, even though we covered three years in the last several chapters, we're about to spend the next several chapters on one week. One week. Matthew chapter 21 through 28, a third of the book, a third of the book is devoted to the last week of Jesus. Mark chapter 11, remember we walked through Mark together, chapter 11 through chapter 16, a third of the gospel of Mark is what? Is about the last week of Jesus. Gospel of Luke, chapters 19 through 24, it's closer to about a fourth of the book. Wow, you missed the boat on that one, Luke, because nearly half of the gospel of John, nearly half Chapters 12 through 20, beginning today, are about one week in the life of Jesus. In fact, next chapter, beginning in chapter 13 through chapter 19, a third of the book is devoted to one day. One day. A New Testament theologian, a biblical theologian, one of my favorites, Andrew Nacelli, puts it this way, the Gospels are actually just passion narratives with extended introductions. They're really just about this last week, and, and that's, where we're, that's where we're going. Now, in every single one of the Gospels, Jesus has this tangible turn that his disciples notice. He turns towards the cross. You see it alluded to beforehand, and then that last week when he takes deliberate steps towards the cross. It's visible in all of the Gospels. And for us, we've seen it since the very beginning in the phrase, lifted up, or the hour. Remember that phrase coming over and over again? started with, right, Jesus' mother saying, hey, you need to fix this wedding And he's like, woman, what's this wedding to me? And what does he say? As kindly as only Jesus can say, you're not allowed to talk to your mother that way. When you're the son of God, you're you're allowed to be Lord over your mother. The rest of us, not so much, right? And he says, my hour has not come. What's he talking about? Every single instance after that, when people either want to execute him or they want to make him king, remember that? let's, Let's take over now. What does he keep saying? The time has not come. And yet, in John chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus, look, there's a time coming. I will be lifted up. The hour will come. And the hour that he's speaking of is the hour of his death. And so in chapter 12, we come to a screeching halt. We've been flying through the first few years of Jesus' ministry, but we slam on the brakes to zoom in on this last week because this hour is coming. The glory that Jesus is to receive the glory that God will bring to himself through Jesus will come in this hour in which Jesus is lifted up. Now let's walk through some of the responses that we see here. We see the glory of God in Jesus in worship and submission. We see it in obedience. We see all of these in the face of opposition. And then we see a discerning or an honoring of the death of Jesus. One person put it this way. When we see the weight of God in Jesus, we worship in the face of misunderstanding and opposition. And we look to him and his death and his resurrection in order to share his glory. Literally, you saw at the very end what we would become in Christ. 
sons and daughters of light. Children of light. So we've got to dig into this word that keeps showing up in this chapter we'll talk about both this week and next week. That word, glory. Now, most literally, you've heard me talk about this before, most literally, that word glory is the word weight. For, for some of you physics nerds, this is going to be really exciting for you because this is the best way we know to describe this. It's like mass or matter. There is a weightiness to Jesus. There is a glory to Jesus. And there is a glory that God alone deserves. And to seek and want that glory is to take something we do not deserve. We just sang it and we'll sing it again. Worthy. Worthy is who? Jesus. Worthy is God the Father to, desire, to, to receive the glory that He will get from every single tongue and every knee will declare and bow before Him this almighty Jesus who deserves all the glory. But that ought to resonate with you. Because down deep, one of the greatest fears that each and every one of you has and you bring to the table is this. You're terrified that you don't matter. You're terrified. Down deep, you don't matter. And in that fear, again, you physics nerds are going to follow right along with me, and that fear that you literally have no matter, you have no mass, you have no glory that you deserve, you lash out to, to get whatever glory you can. You try as much as you can in this life, and we saw this, like, ultimately you can see that if you don't really believe that Jesus is the resurrection, then what you'll do is you'll pour your, pour your entire life and all your, all your weight into this little time span you have on earth. And some of you, you miss, like, you, you're working as hard as you can, you're terrified when relationships don't go like, the, like you think they should. Why? Because you don't really think Jesus is the resurrection. You think this is it. And so you're trying as hard as you can, get as much glory as you possibly can. And that weight, that mass that we desire ultimately belongs to God. So one way of thinking about it, the most literal way, is that glory is weight, it's mass. And therefore, the glory of God is simply a byproduct of his character and nature. In the same way that gravity is simply an outworking of mass. The greater the mass, the more matter, the more that it matters, literally, the greater the gravitational pull. That's how glory works. The example I always give is my, my favorite at the moment. We're going to have to come up with a new one at some point. But there's a man by the name of Usain Bolt. And he is right now, and has been for a record number of years, the fastest man on earth. Now, how do you get that title? You get that title by winning the 100-meter dash in the Olympics. And that title, the fastest man on earth, goes to him. Now, is it arrogant of him? Is it prideful of him is it is it shameful of him to stand up here and say i'm the fastest man on earth right and and what would it say about you if you thought you deserved that title more than him if in the middle of the olympics he runs the race and as the crowd cheers to to celebrate the victory of usain bolt you stood you walked out onto the track and you said thank you thank you thank you how absurd would it be to think that you somehow deserve the glory for a race you've never won? Friend, what do you think we look like to the most infinitely massive, glorious being in the universe? The one who quite literally matters above all else. He deserves the glory. The gravity that exists in your own heart towards him is just an outpouring and an outworking of how great and massive he really is. And any attempt on our part to somehow steal that, to somehow want things to be gravitating towards us is just like standing in front of someone else who won a gold medal and expecting some sort of acclaim. Now I say that because we live, for the least, if you've been born since like the 1940s, you probably are a part of the most entitled culture that's lived since probably about the second century. That's a big deal. Because that entitlement is an outworking of what? A belief that we matter more than something else. And what we see here, the glory that God receives is the glory he deserves and shares whenever we lay ours down. You see, this is an upside-down kingdom. The most glorious king actually goes in front of the army to die for his people. He doesn't send his subjects to die for him. He jumps in front and he dies for them. 
So that therefore, whenever we seek that kind of glory, the way that we do it is we actually relinquish any right to glory. And once we realize we don't deserve any glory at all, that's when we receive the title of children of light. God actually shares his glory with us. Did you catch that? If you want to live the good life, what does it say you do? You lay it down. And what happens when you relinquish your right to the good life? In Christ, you find it. This kingdom's upside down. And so the first glory that we see Jesus receiving here is from a woman by the name of Mary. She demonstrates a point to us. One theologian puts it this way, self must be displaced by another. The endless, shameless focus on self must be displaced by focus on Jesus Christ, who is the supreme revelation of God. In another way, think of it, this, think of it like this. The servant who does not stoop to his own will, but who performs the will of the one who sent him, even to the death, even to the death of the cross, is the one who glorifies God. Jesus cries out that the Father might be glorified. Jesus receives the glory of the Father by relinquishing any entitlement to his own glory. Even though we see that he's one with God, he's a part of creating us, and yet we find later that he finds apparently equality with God isn't something to be grasped, but instead he takes the form of servant. And the most glorious position in all the universe is for the one who laid down his life for everyone else. He took the position of servant, not entitled to be served, but in order to serve and be a ransom for the people that didn't deserve it. Second Corinthians puts it this way, God who has said, now let sh- light shine out of darkness. Hear that language again? That's what the Apostle Paul is telling a church at Corinth. That light has shown where? In our own hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. We have beheld this glory, this thing that is worthy of all of our affections. The most weighty of things is in Christ. And back to what I said. I know many of you, most of the things you do, you do because you're terrified you don't really matter. Down deep, you're afraid. And there's one of two things you can do. You can either respond in bitterness and scrap for glory yourself, which will destroy you, or you can respond in awe and worship. The example I usually use is something like a mountain, or maybe like a metropolis, or maybe like the Grand Canyon. Like no one peeks over the edge of the Grand Canyon and goes, I'm awesome. No one. No one sits at the the base of a mountain range and and goes, I'm huge. I'm a really big deal. No one. No one gets in front of a hurricane and says, I mean a whole lot. No one would do such a thing. What do you do in those moments? What do you do? I feel this especially when I'm like taking off from a plane in a a metropolis. I felt this the most powerfully one time we were on a mission trip to Kathmandu, um, some some nine million people living in Nepal. And I remember flying flying out of that thing and just looking out at the you know, this city, nine million people, and feeling so insignificant. I'm nobody. I'm nobody. Because one of two things you can do, you can either look at the city, look at the mountain, look at the canyon, and try to compare yourself to it. You can compete for its glory. And you know what happens when people try to compete for the glory that the Grand Canyon deserves? They usually die. And if you compete for the glory that Mount Everest deserves, what happens? It's a good chance you're not going to survive. You can look around at the city and the people around you and say, oh, I'm better, I'm greater. Or you can do, if you saw here, what Mary did. You can do what you saw these people did when they saw Jesus coming. Instead of being crushed Instead, they are drawn into worship. The massivity, if you will, the, the mass of God in Christ draws them in. He comes in to this place, and one of the first things that happens is he goes to a dinner throne at the house of Lazarus. Now, we don't know exactly how much further out. It just says that now the Passover of the Jews was at hand at the end of chapter 12. We don't know how much exactly time has 
transpired, but we know apparently we're right at the beginning of the week of the Passover, a big celebration, right on the heels of Lazarus dying. So let me zoom out for just a moment and let you see this. Did you catch that? Lazarus was at this house in Bethany. Who is Lazarus, you will say? Verse 1 tells us. In case you forgot, I don't know if you heard it, he like repeat, John repeated it. He's the guy who's dead. The guy who's dead. He said it several times in chapter 11. Did it again. Lazarus. Which, oh, he was the guy who died. Is he dead? No, he's not still dead. The one whom Jesus raised from the dead. And so what did they do? Well, I don't know what you would do when Jesus brought your best friend back to life, your brother or family member back to life, but what they did is they threw a dinner. They threw a party. I like to imagine that the same way we kind of, you know, every culture has done this, when we experience death, we experience what I would call the, the condolence of the casserole, right? The honor of the hot dish. And so you are showered with the blessing of food, food that you couldn't possibly eat. And I like to think that there was like all this food sitting there to, to mourn the loss of the death of, death of Lazarus. And they were like, oh snap, what do we do with all this mourning food? We're going to celebrate and then we're going to serve it to Lazarus. <laughs> hey Lazarus, you won't believe it. The person, they, imagine, can't you imagine that? They brought this and they were weeping and they were, they were saying, I'm sorry for your loss. You should try it. This was made in the honor of your death. And for what? They threw a dinner. So they gave the dinner for Jesus. Martha served. And we see this elsewhere in the other Gospels. There's a picture of like Martha maybe over-serving, missing out on what Mary is doing and sitting at the feet of Jesus. We see here there all the time at the feet of Jesus. And Lazarus is one of those reclining with him at table. Now this is a great phrase for us. This is, this is, we're going to see this again in the Gospel of John, but we see it in all the Gospels in some form or fashion. Look at that phrase reclining with him at table. Reclining with Jesus at table. If I could, as best I know how, that little brown card around you has a map of houses where people gather in Jesus' name. If I were to summarize what that is, I would say that's it right there. People reclining with Jesus at table around food, around snacks, I don't know, gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, or dairy-full, whatever, reclining with Jesus. That's it. Where does this idea of gospel community come, come from? It comes from Jesus. Evidently, you get some people who've been raised from the dead by Jesus, given new life in Jesus. You remember the story of Mary? We find this in all the, any other gospels. Evidently, she's been delivered from the oppression of demons. You get a few people who see Jesus for what he really is. You gather them around the table with him. And then you let Jesus do what he does. And you let people respond to the worth and glory of Jesus. What does she do? Does she try to grasp that glory for herself? No. Throw a dinner, honoring Jesus. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound. We found light, find later here, evidently it was worth about 300 denarii. That's roughly a year's salary. A year's salary. And she took that. We don't know if she inherited it. We don't know if she, maybe they were wealthy. They seem, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus seem to be people of means. They, they're listed in the Gospel of Luke amongst uh, a list of women who get stuff done and actually mobilize the, the discipling ministry of the apostles. Right? That, that, that maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe she's wealthy. Maybe she inherited it. For whatever reason, she had a very, very expensive thing. One of the first things we see here. As I want to challenge some of you. With great wealth is demanded great generosity. I want to encourage you, there's a bunch of you in this room that right now you are trying to make a name for yourself and you're trying to really like, be successful and rich. And it's because you think you deserve a glory. And I want to encourage you if, you, if you think you deserve the glory, you should not be given wealth. Wealth is for what? Laying at the foot of the Almighty. So some of you are really frustrated in this, right? And this, ask yourself this question for many of you. Am I comfortable making enough money just to survive? Or do I somehow deserve more? I know a lot of you have a college education or you're on the way towards that. I want to encourage you. Why are you doing that? Is it because you feel more entitled to something than apparently the rest of the world? 
Don't miss the model here. The people of means did what? What did they do with it? They demonstrated radical generosity to the cause of Christ. They realized they're just stewards. I got this year's salary worth of ointment. What do I do with it? Well, there's a lot of people that would argue you should do this or that. What did she say? In whatever way, in whatever form or fashion, she's thought that Jesus deserved the glory of it. We saw she didn't try to grab the glory, but instead she lays it down. She takes this expensive ointment, pure nard apparently, and anoints the feet of Jesus with it. Now, I've never spent anything like this, but just imagine, what would it look like if someone gave you a birthday present that was their entire salary? Imagine that. What would have to be true about your relationship to where someone would lay down there like a year's salary? I know a little bit about this. When I was in college, I bought an exorbitant, ridiculous diamond ring for my wife. And every single penny I made that year, I spent on a massive diamond ring for my wife. Now, on one hand, we had no money, and you should have been like, why didn't you put that in savings for your first year of marriage? I don't know. I'm gonna, hopefully, maybe, maybe I can resonate with Mary. I was just, I, I was in love with the girl, right? And then the next thing you'll ask is, well, how did you make a living after that? Well, after I spent all of that year's money, I had to sell my motorcycle, which is what I had spent the last year's wages on. <laughs> That's the closest thing I can come up with. And the only reason that was a year's salary is because I didn't make very much money. But imagine, what would have to be true for a person to lay down a year's salary and just like crumble it over you? I don't mean like buy you a gift. I mean something like for us, like buying flowers. I love this. We see elsewhere in the other Gospels tell an account of this, that she broke off the neck of the jar so that she could empty it out completely. Some of you ladies will know what that's like, right? You ever seen a woman or a man put on perfume or cologne, right? A man, all over, right? You know who you are. Fragrance does not cover up bathing, okay? It's not a replacement for bathing. It's not. We, all, like, we know you're covering something up, but not a woman. Most times a woman will do like, what, just a little? A little dainty. Seen it? You're laughing because you know what this looks like. Just, little, just a little dab, just so the people most intimate to that person will begin to experience it, right? Did you just catch what Mary did? She, she broke off the spray nozzle and dumped it on Jesus. In the other Gospels, we see that she actually dumped it on his head as well to anoint him as king. And we saw, we saw the kingliness of his grand and triumphal entry in this chapter, didn't we? But John wants us, make, wants us to be clear that the main thing that Mary did wasn't that she just anointed him as king and covered his whole body with this expensive ointment. She even anointed his feet. His feet. The lowliest of places to wash the feet of someone. We'll see Jesus make a point on this particular thing later. And then she did something countercultural. Women in this particular ancient Near East culture wouldn't have let their hair down ever. And what does she do? She lets her hair down. And as if, you know, it's, this is like, have you ever seen your grandmother without makeup, right? Like, no one's ever seen that. I don't know if that's for me. And then and there's this kind of like, she lets her hair down to do what? To stoop to the, I, I don't, I mean, this isn't Rapunzel, okay? She's not in a tower wiping his feet. Her ear was to the ground. At the very least, maybe lifting his foot to her head, but taking the most honorable part of her body and what? Wiping off the most shameful part of Jesus' body. Did you see it? Did you see what she did at the face of the foot of the mountain? She didn't try to grab the glory. She instead poured out her own glory. And what does Jesus say will happen? Jesus says something pretty profound, like everyone will remember this. No one will forget this. He even defends her. I know for some of you, worshiping and following Jesus has brought you into a position of ridicule. I'll share, share with this with you last week. I know some of you, the fact that you're here, that we're opening a Bible, and we believe what it says, has caused you to be the object of shame in your family. I know. 
Mary was the object of shame of Judas. Did you catch that? Couldn't we have served the poor with this? And I love this. this I, just, I want you to hear the words of Jesus before I kind of like break down his words. But like, just, I want to encourage you. If you're like the object of ridicule or you fear ridicule because of what we believe to be true about Jesus, did you catch Jesus' words? He looks at her accuser and says what? You leave her alone. Friend, the Beatitudes tell us that the blessing we receive even in persecution, is that Jesus comes alongside us and destroys our enemy. Death, hell, and the grave all die at the foot of Jesus. And, and your persecutor, your accuser, will either be an object of God's glory because he will turn them to glorify Jesus or he will use them as an object of his wrath to demonstrate this is what happens when you mess with me and my children. I can just encourage you, if, like this, if it's weird that we're opening the Bible and believing it, I know that makes you an object of wrath. Like, worshiping Jesus seems far-fetched for you. I want to encourage you. Jesus is like, look, don't worry about them. I'll deal with them. In fact, this is one of the last times we hear about Judas. It might even be the case that this rebuke is what propelled him off to betray Jesus. But he makes a statement. Shouldn't we just be like, I don't know, giving all this money to serve the poor? John beats me to it. I don't have to preach this sermon. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He didn't love the poor. Instead, he just was probably convicted by her worship. Her devotion probably messed with him. You know how that feels. You have those friends that are like overly affectionate in public? You have that? Any of those friends? Just always holding hands, hugging, and you're like, okay, this is... This is starting to creep me out. Have you felt that? It's like indicting, isn't it? It makes you feel uncomfortable. You're like, all they're doing is loving one another, but there's something that you're like, since you're not in it, 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 like, it provokes you, doesn't it? At the worst, it like disgusts you, but maybe you envy it. Maybe your disgust is just a veil for the fact that you feel lonely. You wish someone would love you in public. Don't miss that. What does he do? I'm convinced that when he saw Mary show that great love to Jesus, he probably realized there's no way in all the earth that he would be able to lay down such great worth for Jesus. In fact, he was willing to sell them for 30 pieces of silver. The next thing we see, an amazing thing in the light of this great sacrifice, is a discernment of his death. Jesus says, ultimately, look, this is about my burial. Ultimately, this is about the glory that I will receive. Matthew 13 puts it this way in this little brief parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered it up. Then what did he do? Because he was obligated, because he had a sense of duty, because he was a good tactician, right? Because he was a good accountant? No. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In the end, the glory that Jesus deserves is a glory that he deserves because he shares his joy with us. He begins to walk in. The second thing we see is this obedience that Jesus begins to command, not only a submission and a worship that convicts us, but we see something powerful in the triumphal entry. Jesus does not enter Jerusalem on a war horse. He walks into Jerusalem, where he rides into Jerusalem, on a donkey's colt. That's right out of Zechariah chapter 9. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Why? Why is that important? Because Jesus comes as a humble king. He doesn't demand your worship by crushing you. Instead, he offers you family. He offers you adoption by crushing your enemies. And so they get a sense of this, and they're like, man, this is, this is a fever pitch. If this guy can raise people from the dead, surely he can take over right now and be king. And so they begin to be excited. And then there's a theme that we see for the rest of the chapter. Did you catch that? The Pharisees in verse 19 there's this theme of opposition or turning away. Jesus, you see, is opposed by Judas. He turns away, he betrays, the one who will betray. We see that earlier. And then verse 19, Pharisees, look, the world is going after him. They're turning against us and going after him. Verse 20, something, as we work towards the end of the chapter, something happens. It says that among the people who were worshiping, 
that week and wanted to see Jesus were Greeks. They were Greeks. They were not they were not Jews. They were not born into this religious surrounding, but instead they were outsiders drawn in. I don't want you to miss this either. This is you see the mission of God, the mission of Jesus on display here and also in the church. I, I try to draw attention to this as much as I possibly can, that we are on a mission to make much of Jesus, drawing people to him. I love this phrase. It just says, uh, what, one of the, I, I heard a theologian talk about it this way, that he was preaching at different, at different churches, and on, on, the, on the front of the pulpit, it's really ornate, but on the back, it's pretty rough. And, and there was an inscription on, on the back of the pulpit, and it was a quote from John chapter 12, and it said, in the King James translation, Sir, we would see Jesus. As if we were to look out at the world and realize they're like, I want to see Jesus. Sir, let us see Jesus. But as the hour comes, it's turned on this moment where the Greeks, the outsiders, were the ones drawing close to Jesus. Jesus was drawing the outsiders to himself. Now that's especially important for us because we see the mission fulfilled and the mission we're called to be a part of fulfilling. The fulfilled mission, I I want to draw your attention to this as much as I possibly can, is, is simply evident by the fact that I'm standing here a continent and an ocean away talking about Jesus. Often we talk about Unfortunately, Westerners think that like really the, the, the solutions to the world are brought about by Westerners. That's imperialism. And we import that into the way we see the gospel going to the nations. And so we kind of have this white Jesus where we think that like a Westerner should it, like take the gospel to the unreached people groups. Okay, but the only reason we feel that way is because we used to be one of the unreached people groups. Did you see the hour that came, the nowness of this moment happened when the outsiders were first drawn to Jesus? Look, there are no Caucasians in the Bible. Like, just think, if, if Jesus, like, I don't I'm trying to think how, even how to illustrate this. Imagine if, like, Lazarus walked into the door and saw this Iron Kid's bread covered in mayonnaise white thing in the front talking about Jesus. You think it's normal. He'd be like, first, where did you come from? Do they have, not have a son where you live? Like, is there... He would, like, he, he wouldn't, he'd never seen something like me. He's never seen this. And then to be like, what a foreign thing. And then, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. He's, he loves Jesus too? He's been redeemed by Jesus too? You get the mission, the nowness of this kingdom that's coming is seen every day we get together. We were the unreached people group. And the mission we're called to be on to make much of Jesus is simply because we're recipients of it recipients of it. The nowness of this kingdom is visible in this mission that's completed in our midst in some sense and also compelling us to be a part of it. This devotion, this sacrifice is the way that God receives glory. Ultimately so that we will see Him for who He is, lifted up, exalted, and then compelled to glorify Him. You see, most of our problems aren't actually moral or obedience problems. They're glory problems. And so if you've seen Jesus for all that he's worth, our response now is to see him on a scale alongside every other thing. And if you put the God of the universe on one side of the scale and then the stuff you really love that's not him on the other, you begin to realize that scale tips. It tips. And the thing on the other side is inconsequential. Now this will help you because I want to encourage you, glory is first having your eyes open to the greatness of Jesus, that He would welcome us into His kingdom, take our place, experience the wrath that He did not deserve. Did you catch that? My soul is troubled. But what does He do? He's like, I'm going to do this. Why? Because I want the glory to go where it belongs. Glory is a discipline. Glory is a response to the transformation that happens when our eyes are open to the goodness and greatness of Jesus. You see, most of you think you really struggle to do what is right or wrong because of something like you think you can stir up in yourself. Your obedience problem is actually a glory problem. 
Your belief problem, your unbelief problem is a glory problem. In that moment, you know right from wrong. You know not to lie. But in that moment when the truth will cost you the approval of your peers or your boss or your job, what do you do? You have a glory problem, don't you? Is God's character revealed through his word sufficient? Or is the approval of my peers what's really glorious? You know human sexuality is a special thing. It's a sacred thing. You know there's a way it ought to look that glorifies Christ. But in the heat of the moment, you have a glory problem. You don't have an obedience or a moral problem. You have a glory problem. In the heat of the moment, that pleasure or satisfaction or approval, that comfort, just seems more glorious than anything else. That's why most of the time we don't have a problem knowing right from wrong. We have this instinct in us. The Bible calls it the image of God. It testifies to His character. But in the moments where we think there's just something more glorious, we opt to worship and empty our life salary at the foot of that thing we find to be the most glorious. And we'll stoop, unhindered, unhindered by shame or anything else, and we will wipe the feet of that thing with our hair. You have a glory problem. So ask yourself, what's most glorious? What's most glorious? And if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or the things that Christians believe about what it means to follow Jesus, if those things seem, you know, if they seem offensive or strange, I'm glad you're here. I'm, I, I'm, I don't want you to not be offended. I want you to be offended by Jesus. And I want you to consider, like, what, what, would, it, what would it look like for Jesus to be so glorious that you do whatever he said? What would have to be true? And we find something amazing. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this kingdom come for our benefit. I'm going to read you Zechariah 9.9, the thing that's quoted here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I love that. He's not here to crush you. Matthew says, the bruised reed he will not break. Instead, he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. That's not manifest destiny. Okay? And from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Do you hear the Greeks? And wield you like a warrior's sword. Look, your deepest hopes, your deepest fears are fulfilled in this Jesus. Your deepest worry that you don't matter, that you're ignored, that you have no mass, you have no real gravity, have been satisfied by the one who has infinite mass. And when we finally acknowledge that, I love, Mary gets to like just admit her past. Some of you are terrified of your past because you think it's more glorious. Look what she's able to say, look, this is where I came from, but I don't care. I'm going to love this guy. You don't, you don't know what I used to be. You don't know where I used to be. You don't know what Jesus has done for me. He deserves more than this. And the desires of your heart, that longing that you have to matter, to not be abandoned, don't miss this good news, are satisfied in a humble king who does not come to shame you, crush you. Instead, he comes recline at a table with you how do we respond to this well for us the tangible and visible way we do this is through the celebration of the lord's supper and so in a moment here i'll close us in prayer and we'll respond in a specific way we'll take this morning's offering and then we'll reflect on the body and the blood of christ broken and shed for us and as you're ready after we stand we'll begin to make our way to the front and we're going to take part in and participate in a profound 
an amazing picture that the king of the universe, this seems strange, you'll understand. You'll want me to do this. That the king of the universe, the infinite and mighty, most massive and glorious being in all of existence, wants to meet with you at a table. If the most powerful and most amazing person in the world came to your house, you would want to clean it up and you would probably feel crushed by him. But instead of the king of the universe coming to your table to crush you and to shame you, the king of the universe comes to your table and becomes the thing broken for you. So that someone can stand up here and say, the body of Christ, broken for you. The blood of Christ, poured out for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are glorious. I confess even now that your glory does not, it does not fit into my words. So I confess that even my best efforts to communicate your glory are inadequate. But thank you that you have not left us in suspense. You have instead demonstrated your glory to us. You have introduced your glory to us through means that even a child can witness. So as we prepare our own hearts to, to come face to face with this glorious King Jesus, would you even now, as the enemy starts to stir up all the reasons we don't deserve your love, as the enemy starts to stir up all the reasons why we don't deserve and have not earned the glory you're offering to us, would you now speak a better word, a more infinite and powerful word? You have paid the price. You have made the way. You have invited us to this table you have brought Lazarus to life so that he can recline at this table. Would you bring us to life that we would sit with you? If there's some in this room, maybe this good news of Jesus seems far-fetched, or at the very least, it just seems not that great. Would you even now begin to help us to consider whether the thing we're really glorifying is worth it? Would you help us to consider, is it, is it possible the thing I'm I'm after the, the identity I have, the thing I'm pursuing. Is it possible that really never can satisfy? What then? Would you begin even as we take communion to display a good word to them? It is not us that have to be crushed by these things we worship, but instead it is you that have willingly been crushed so that we might be free, that we might be sons and daughters of light. Let this glory be visible as we partake in this sacrifice. Let us discern like Mary the death of Jesus. Let us discern like the others the death of Jesus. Let us discern the wisdom of Jesus' words that a seed actually becomes fruitful only when it's buried. Let us discern that and experience joy in Jesus' name. Amen.